All right, Hebrews 3. Before, keep something there in Hebrews, but uh, go over to Mark. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Turn over to Mark chapter 4. This uh, familiar parable, you know what a parable is? It's an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. This is one of the parables that Jesus taught. And it's the parable oftentimes called the sower. But it really is more of the parable of the soils. Because the emphasis is on the soils versus the sower. But nevertheless, if your Bible is like mine, it says parable of the sower. Don't, don't do anything to it. It's okay. On the little headings. Those little headings aren't inspired, okay? They're just put there uh, to help us, guide us. But, but just to kind of, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. The parable of the sower, he talks about uh, verse 2 as he was teaching and he taught in parables and he talked about a sower went out to sow. I mean, that the term broadcaster came from one who uh, broadly casted seed. That's where the term broadcasting uh, came from. And so the sower is out uh, sowing seed. And maybe, you know, I always kind of picture in my head whether they were wherever they were sitting. Maybe he looked over and saw somebody on their fields and they were out there throwing seed and he just said, hey, look, look over there. And that was just kind of an immediate, I don't know. And, uh, and he kind of walks through and tells the story about the different seeds that fell on different grounds. Um, you know, the first seed is fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Verse uh, 5, another seed fell on rocky ground, and uh, it didn't take root. And uh, when the sun rose, it was scorched. And verse 7, other seed fell on thorns, and the thorns uh, choked out the seed. But other seeds, he said, fell on good soil and produced grain. And so if you go down a little bit, uh, he gives an explanation of what he was teaching, verse 11, uh, that it was a parable of the kingdom of God, and he talks about the secret of the kingdom of God and what it means, verse 13, and he says, uh, verse 14, the sower uh, illustrated is the one who sows the word, and these are the ones along the path, and says that when the word, which is like seed, uh, is sown when they hear, Satan uh, comes and takes away the word, like those birds that came and took away the seed. And then there are the others that fell on, uh, the other ones that were sown, verse 16, on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. There's an initial excitement with joy at what they heard. There's, And then they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then giving application, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Kind of, we'll talk about it, but not just because uh, you're not getting persecuted just because you're an obnoxious person or something, but it's because of the word, because of your commitment to the word. It says, immediately they, likening these people to their hearts, to rocky ground, they fall away. Well, that's a pertinent uh, opening for where we uh, want to look in the book of Hebrews, because as we, as we know, been talking about every week, that those that the author of Hebrews is writing and addressing are those who uh, have a Jewish uh, background, or really Jews, they're Jews ethnically um, and culturally, but they... Uh, are in the church uh, and made some commitment to Christ. And there's some, obviously, like any setting, that are true believers and some that are superficial believers. But nevertheless, uh, they are all concerned, or the general tenor of the audience to, of the book of Hebrews is that they are being tempted to, well, I'll ask you, they're being tempted to do what? Go back. To go back to the old ways of Judaism. To go back to the cultural uh, 
settings, the cultural security of being with their families, going back to their pals at the synagogue, going uh, back to keeping the ceremonial laws, going back to keep the dietary laws, all those things. Uh, and, you know, more than likely, they probably were still eating like Jews. They were probably still doing those things. I mean, that, but to, to go back in the sense that those were things that of how they met God or were righteous or could be made righteous or were to be maintaining righteousness. In other words, to go back to the old covenant ways uh, and depart from being a follower of Jesus. Because being a follower of Jesus now, like the seed that was thrown on rocky soil, it endured for a while, but when tribulation came, when trouble came, all of a sudden there came to be a testing. You remember James tells us in the first, what, verse 2, verse 3, you know, count it all joy when troubles come, when tribulations come, because he said it tests your what? Test your faith. It, it, see, it, it determines trouble and those things determine what that faith, and I, and I don't mean faith in the sense of, uh, you know, just kind of in a generic, but what you know, put the word trust there. Jim likes to use the word trust when he teaches, and I've gotten to where I try to do that too, because that helps me that faith isn't just, you know, whatever out here. I have faith the sun will rise, but, but trust, meaning that I trust uh, in something tangible. I'm trusting in Christ. I'm trusting in the gospel that, uh, that trust, well, am I trusting or am I holding on loosely, but when trouble comes, then I abandon what I've made, maybe I've mouthed a commitment, but I hadn't really, don't have a solid commitment. But often when trouble and testings come, that's when we really get a sense, really how strong and how committed is my faith. Well, that's where these folks are that the author of Hebrews is writing to. They were in danger of going back to a more comfortable life in their old Jewish settings, their old... Uh, the old covenant Jewish religion. And so he, uh, like Jesus, he, um, he concludes his comparison by showing uh, the writer of Hebrews now where we left off last week. Remember, he's been doing this, that Jesus is greater. Jesus is more superior. Jesus is better. And last week we left off that Jesus is greater or better than Moses. And to this audience, that, was, that would have been a big deal because, you know, Moses... You know, he's not chopped liver, right? I mean, he's a big guy. He's very well, you know, you know he was the, uh, the, the prophet. He was the one that God, uh, you know, the, brought the law through and uh, delivered out of uh, Egypt. And so, you know, Moses is, is big. So, but yet, as great and as wonderful as Moses is or was, uh, Jesus is greater than Moses. And he said that the builder of the house... This is in the first six verses of chapter 3, that the builder of the house has greater honor than the house. So Moses was a servant, uh, it says there in verses 1 through 6, Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son. So not putting Moses in any, but yet recognizing, and we looked at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus took three disciples up there and you had Moses and Elijah, and Jesus and the Father said, this is my son, hear him. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, they're not on three, they're not, there's not parity there, there's not equal equality there, but Jesus is superior, just as we said in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that in times past, God spoke through various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken, and the, the kind of the way the Greek emphasizes is there's a finality uh, that he has spoken to us in his son. The final, a final uh, word, but Jesus wasn't just the final message, uh, or, but he was the final, uh, or he, rather he wasn't just the final messenger, but he himself was the message. Remember on the road to Damascus, he came, or the, those disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, rather, and uh, he came up alongside of them, and it says that beginning with, and as he was talking with them, he's resurrected, Luke 24, and it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them all those things 
concerning himself. So Jesus is it, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is kind of, again, emphasizing again and again, because you you, you say you want to go back, you want to go back, but there's... God's not in what you want to go back to. God's not doing one thing there and he's doing something with Jesus. Everything's on Jesus. Everything that God is doing is on Jesus. That's, that's where, that's where the, the hope is. That's where your, 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 uh, your future is. That's where your uh, salvation is, is in Christ. So he's saying, how can you go back to something that God in essence has abandoned and is essence inferior. Remember in Colossians, um, to those folks in uh, Colossae, they were kind of dabbling in all sorts of different things, and one of the things they were dabbling in was Jewish legalism, and he talked about why would you, why would you, uh, why would you trade the shadow of things when you have the reality that's Christ? Remember Colossians says that? Why, why would you take something that's only an image of the reality when you have the reality? Um, and so that's, uh, that's uh, the writer of Hebrews and the audience uh, that he is, again, making his point. And so the writer of Hebrews does this in this second section, uh, in verses 7 through 11 of Hebrews 3. He does this uh, and shows them the example uh, and illustrates his point by giving them and reminding them of a little Jewish History. Who likes history? Who did, who liked, who, who did well with history in school? Yeah, I did. I did you know. Math, English, not so good. You know, history, um, you know, I did okay with that. Well, he, he gives them a history lesson, and these were history lessons that they knew all too well, the story of Israel in the wilderness, and, of course, every Passover, the recounting of the deliverance from Egypt. And what he does, if you... Uh, look in your Bibles, you'll notice, depending on uh, how, uh, what version you have here, they, they use different methods of, um, of type, uh, T-Y-P-E, to kind of set off anytime there's an Old Testament quote. If you have a New American Standard, anytime the uh, New American Standard uh, quotes the New Testament, they always put those quotes in all caps. So when you see it, you're like, oh, that's a, that's in the, that's a quote from the Old Testament. That's a passage from the Old Testament. Others, like the ESV, and I'm not sure about the NIV, but I think they, they might make more of an indentation a little bit uh, instead of the paragraph. So if you see that, you'll see verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then the latter part, it says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now that's a uh, that's a quotation, uh, really, uh, except for maybe I think verse eleven might be from Numbers, but the the rest of it is a quotation from the latter part of Psalm ninety five. You don't need to turn to Psalm ninety five, but the latter part of Psalm ninety five that is what this is. It's a quotation from Psalm ninety five, and so. He uses this very familiar psalm to, and to illustrate those who rejected uh, God, who rejected God's provision, rejected God's guidance, and in essence uh, went backward by their rebellion and by their disobedience. And so Psalm 95 was a psalm that was used, in, was one of the psalms that was often used in the synagogues for a call to worship, you know, an opening worship. They would read Psalm 95, and it tells about those, the redeemed from Egypt, and applying the blood of the Passover lamb on their homes. Um, Paul said that uh, they were um, uh, and delivered uh, 
by the Lord, baptized into Moses through the cloud, and they ate the heavenly manna and uh, drank the water from the rock that God miraculously provided. And you know, it, 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 there's a there's a there's an, a, a seemingly an assumption that these folks that are being addressed here, uh, not the Hebrews audience, but the folks in the Old Testament, were a redeemed people. They were the people of God. Okay, but yet Paul says. In fact, if you want to go over and look at, I don't have it, I don't think, in your, your notes there. I'm not sure what, which all I put in there. We're not on point number one yet. But uh, look over at uh, 1 Corinthians 10.5. Just hang a left and uh, go to 1 Corinthians 10.5. I won't have you flip around too much, but it's a, it's a good scripture to mark and know where it's at. 1 Corinthians 10.5. Uh, beginning at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, for Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, meaning our fathers, Jewish fathers, the patriarchs, those that preceded us, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And you know the cloud of God's uh, Shekinah, glory and presence that guided the Israelites, uh, that our fathers were all under the cloud, had personal um, guidance and supervision by Yahweh, and they all passed through the sea, deliverance, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock. Is your R capitalized there? Uh, he's making reference to Jesus as the rock. The, uh, even you know that even though what they were experiencing, uh, New Testament, we we you know he's giving us some interpretation that there was Christ was pictured in that deliverance uh, that they all drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock, well, he tells us there, doesn't he, verse 4, a latter part, that the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5, okay, they experienced all these miracles, all this deliverance, all this miracles of God. You would think, how much better can you get? But what, is, what does Paul say? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they are overthrown in the wilderness. In fact, the, the, the generation, except for uh, Caleb and Joshua and uh, their families, uh, pretty much the, that uh, most of the first generation died uh, in that 40 years in the wilderness. And they did not enter into the promised land. So, but his point is saying that even though they experienced all the miraculous things of God... Yet God was displeased with them. They, they did not uh, persevere. They're, sadly, as much as the seed, if you will, as we said earlier, was sown, it apparently was sown on hard ground. You know, we, we've heard the statement that even though they left Egypt, somehow Egypt never left them. And so the writer of Hebrews is using this Old Testament story to use that as an illustration, because these Jews were certainly cognizant of their history. Very easy illustration, but he's wanting to make the very same point. And he uses Psalm 95 to, to drill down and make this same point, uh, that this hardness of heart, that the fathers were proved displeasing to the Lord, that the fathers demonstrated uh, disobedience, and even though there was a superficial um, connection and participation, but when tribulation and hardness came, that in that 40 years, they didn't anticipate. They thought, hey, we're just going to go from, you know, Egypt, and we're going we're gonna to have a little, we're going to have a little field trip through the wilderness for a little bit. We're going to do a little camping out, and then a week later, we're going to, it's going to be, you know, honey and, you know, bananas and whatever. I don't know if they had bananas, but anyway, you know, it'll just be, it'll just be great, but it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, some things, so the, so the main, the main, if you uh, see that, that uh, heading there kind of centered, the, the main point, the main idea tonight is to avoid hardness of heart. We're going to talk about hardness of heart. 
We must submit our hearts to God's word and God's ways, and especially in times of trial. There's four lessons, but we're going to look at two tonight because we wouldn't have time. But we're going to look at two uh, in this section, and we'll pick up the other two next week. So number one, in your outline, uh, you can kind of use that now. Uh, number one, to avoid hardness of heart, we must submit to God's authority through His inspired Word. Notice something in verse, uh, in verse uh, 7. It says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. Now he's quoting Psalm 95, as the Holy Spirit says. But if you look over to chapter 4, verse 7, that same psalm, the writer of Hebrews, attributes the psalm to David. And I think that's an important point for us to just kind of make note of. Even though David was the human author, God used human authors, he used humans to write and record what we call scripture, but yet the author behind the human author of what makes scripture God's word is the Holy Spirit, is God. And so uh, right away he says, the Holy Spirit says, yes, David uh, was the human author, but the Holy Spirit, and that's just a little uh, reminder there that the word of God is God's Word is given by God's Word. Human beings, and we'll look at this in a little bit, so I'll save that thought. But So kind of some sub-point -idea, sub ideas is that uh, what the Bible says, God is saying to us now. This isn't just, well, isn't that interesting for those folks? I hope those folks got their act together because that didn't have anything to do with me. No, God's Word is living and breathing and it is very much for us here and now. Uh, he says, today. Today. And that's, a, you know, that's something we need to... That today. Listen, if today, tonight, today, if you hear God's voice, if you are prompted by God's Word and the, and the guidance of the Spirit that work in tandem uh, to obey and to make, take action, uh, do it. Today, if you hear His voice, do it. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure if I went around, many of you uh, can, can testify the times when you felt that prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know, some people get a little bugged out when you talk like that, but I don't, I don't know any other way to explain it. You just, you just sense that, that, that you know, I know, I'll just speak for me, I know when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something he wants me to do because I can't get away from it. It just drives me nuts till the Lord, you know, because the Lord wins all the time, right? And, you know, he, he may get us today or tomorrow, but he's always going to get his way if we have a heart to obey. And so the Holy Spirit is speaking and leading us and to do something. And so we, we need to obey what God's word says there. So God is saying to us now, the word of the Lord speaks to us. And uh, just to kind of underline what I was saying earlier about the Holy Spirit is God's, God, the Word of God is God's Word, that the Holy Spirit is, um, the Holy Spirit used human authors, but yet it's the Holy Spirit, it's God's divine Word. Look at a couple of scriptures that I know are familiar, but sometimes it's just good to see them afresh. Look over to 1 Peter, take a right, go a couple of blocks to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. This uh, and I would make note of these. These are two familiar scriptures, but you may want to make sure you jot those down or mark them in your Bibles because they're important scriptures. Um, actually, I'm sorry, Second Peter. Second Peter. Go one more. Uh, go one more Peter over, and uh, just don't Peter out, or we won't be at the same place. But uh, I'm glad somebody liked that. Second Peter, and this gives us a little insight into the authenticity and the authority of the Word of God. Let's just pick it up at verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we'll read through verse 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, here we go, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Okay, it's not just something they woke up and had some creative thinking there. But it says, verse 21, for no prophecy, and it's not just speaking about prophecy in a predictive way, it's really using it in, a, in the sense of any, any, any word uh, that was delivered or given or written through uh, a prophet, apostle, was ever produced by the will of man. It, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't just their, their words, but men spoke from God, and here's the operative phrase, as they were, the ESV says, as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. Some people think the idea that when you talk about inspiration of Scripture, um, that it's, it's something akin to uh, this, uh, this uh, phenomenon that sometimes people that dabble in the, um, uh, the, in, in the uh, sorcery uh, have some kind of psychic, mechanical reading, that they are, they are kind of overcome by some type of possession, and then they just start writing or writing a different language or writing beyond. Some of you may be familiar with uh, a, a person by the name of Edgar Cayce. He was called the Sleeping Prophet. Uh, and he uh, supposedly would go in these trances, and people would dict, or he would dictate in this, in this, in this psychic sleep, uh, things that were supposed, you know, way beyond his knowledge. And people think that, that that's what we meant by inspired. These men somehow were overcome and they just started doing some kind of dictation or whatever. That's not what, that's not what the biblical understanding of inspiration is. That God used, if when you look at the 66 books of the Bible, you've got books written by kings, you've got written by uh, prophets, you've got them written by fishermen, you've got them written by uh, doctor, uh, you've got written by a uh, scholar, former Pharisee, you've got him written by a diverse group of people. Uh, Amos, he was a fig picker. Uh, just, you know, he worked for uh, uh, the Jerusalem, uh, you know, AFL-CIO 305, you know, uh, fig picking uh, uh, union. Uh, I mean, so, but, but in spite, and that's why people who are uh, way smarter than I can, 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 you could put uh, a couple of Greek texts there, not tell them what is of Paul or Peter, and they can evaluate. Well, I give you, when we talked about the writer of Hebrews, one of the reasons a lot of your commentators and scholars aren't so sure that Paul wrote it uh, was because the style was, uh, is different than the way that Paul wrote. And so, you know, it's not a slam dunk, but they just... So my point is, is that God used people, their personalities, their... Um, if you read John uh, and, you, and uh, you were to read it in the uh, Greek, it is considered... Uh, the, it was kind of... Somebody said it's like the living Bible of its day. It's, it, the Greek language is very simple. When I took uh, Greek in, um, in school... Uh, we use the Gospel of John because the Greek language was very simple. Whereas if you were to use Romans or something like that, the Greek is a little bit more complicated that Paul uses. So, so my point is, is that God used personalities and backgrounds and variety, but in spite of all the different varieties, the Holy Spirit, it says, men were carried along, they were guided they were ushered along. They were, as the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete. He's the helper. And he came along and he guided. Now, you know, I don't quite know all of them were cognizant of that. Um, maybe some, most of them were, I don't know. But, but they wrote under the, the guidance and supervision. So just kind of make note of that there in Hebrews. And, of course, the uh, other verse and uh, we won't turn to it, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired. Um, that's uh, literally God-breathed. God, uh, these words are different 
than the John Grisham novels, or the Tom Clancy novels. There's something life-changing about the Word of God because the Holy Spirit has breathed upon these words. The Holy Spirit has given His breath to these words of Holy Scripture. So the starting point, going back to Hebrews, is that the starting point, we're talking about hardness of heart, hardness of heart, is that the starting point for all of us to avoid a hardness of heart, meaning that we are resistant to listening and obeying the Holy Spirit, the starting point for avoiding a harding, uh, <laughs> let's try that again, the starting point for avoiding a hardened heart is to recognize and submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word under the direction of the Spirit to submit ourselves to the God-breathed Word. That's the starting point that we take, that this is God's Word, God's voice. These aren't God's suggestions, but this is God's Word. And so uh, uh, the second thing, or, or letter B there, is that we should learn, take advantage and learn from the biblical stories of how to avoid the sins of those who had a hardness of heart. I don't know about you, but I would much rather learn life's lessons through your life than mine. You know, like if you have some, you know, I'd much rather learn it from you, Lynette, than have to walk through it myself. I just prefer that, right? Well, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God says that these Old Testament, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, you may want to, I don't know if I have it there, uh, I don't put everything in there, just the main points. But it says that these, these, the things that happened to them, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, speaking of the Old Testament, says that they were written for our instruction. We can benefit by what they did or what they didn't do. And the lesson is either do this or don't do this. <laughs> uh, we can benefit. And so, the, uh, so when it says that the starting point is to hear his voice, we hear his voice and have the advantage of Scripture and have the advantage of God's testimony in what he has recorded in the past, what has been uh, learned from the past. We have that advantage in hearing God's voice for us today, to hear um, God's voice. Remember Jesus said in Revelation, to those who have ears, let them hear. Now, I won't, uh, I know some, I'll talk to the men here, because we have, a, we have a gift that we can hear, but not really hear. You know, we can hear, we can hear the vocal cords connecting to the language and the tongue coming out of my wife, and then she says, Do you, are you listening? Repeat back what I just said. And I might have caught, a, it was kind of like a bad cell phone, because then the one, I'm, I'm only, not she's a bad cell phone, I'm just saying, you know, you hear intermittent words. You know, you hear about every other word. You ever, don't you remember those phone calls? And, it, and usually it starts dropping out in some important point, and they're just, and you're like, hey, I can't hear you, go back, you're dropping out, and... Um, and so it tells us to hear the voice of the Lord. We need to hear the voice. But how do we hear it? Well, we don't have to go off and sit in the corner and, and just kind of hum and stare in the dark. We have the ability to hear word and spirit, but we have the God-given gift to open this book and, and hear the voice of God and speak into our lives. That's the reason it's such a valuable thing to even, you know, that you're here tonight. You're applying yourself to hearing God's voice. Now, the background to Psalm 95, which is uh, what he is quoting from, as I said earlier, that the background of Psalm 95 is the events that are recorded in Exodus 16 and 17, really Exodus 17. I'm not going to go back and uh, read those. I'll paraphrase, but even though they're familiar but Psalm 95, and I've mentioned this before, just before I forget it, one of the uh, valuable uh, tips that I remember, uh, and I don't remember the, the teacher or who said it, but I've heard several people repeat it, that any time when you're studying the New Testament and you come along and it quotes something from the Old Testament, you're like, oh, that's from Psalm 95, whatever. That uh, they, they, they said, don't just 
Don't just read it, but actually go back and look it up. Because often you will find some, some things before... You'll find some things that maybe aren't necessarily directly quoted, but as you go back and read it, and sometimes you'll find that they go back and read it, and it's a little different than uh, your, your version, and sometimes that has to do with what Old Testament or what Hebrew are they using the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Were they using that? So sometimes there's a little difference in the words there. But if you will go back and make the habit that when you come across an, an Old Testament reference, stop, find out what that reference is, and if you have a, a good study Bible or a reference Bible, it'll have uh, the, you know, uh, the reference there. Go back and just read that. And oftentimes you'll find something or a nuance in something that is said that gives you a little different uh, insight you know, or, or, or brings something out. And that's just, I found that to be a, a helpful pr- practice. But the story behind Psalm 95 that is being quoted from is uh, recorded in Exodus 17. Israel had just come out of Egypt. God's mighty deliverance of the nation from the uh, years in bondage, and they went three days into the wilderness. And when they hit the wilderness, and they were there for three days, there was um, there was no water. In fact, the only water they found was bitter water. Uh, it wasn't drinkable water. And uh, you would think, hey, guys, don't be discouraged. God delivered us out of Egypt. This water thing. It's no big deal. He can move again, right? Let's don't be discouraged. Is that what they said? No, if you read it, they were ticked off. And boy, they turned on Moses and said, We knew it. You drug us out here to kill us and let us die. And in essence, you know, they were blaming God. And boy, they just... And I thought, well, isn't that the way the human heart is? You know, things good and then we get a flat tire or, you know, we, we go through one of those... Um, camera lights, you know, when we're in a hurry and or whatever the situation is, and I'm, those are certainly small compared to other things that can often come our way. But they grumbled, they cried out to God, and they they questioned of whether God really what His intense uh, intent uh, intentions were, and uh, but God showed them that tree, and remember. Uh, when the tree, uh, when they, when uh, Moses threw it into the water, what happened to the water? It got purified. All right, it became um, uh, one. Yeah, you know, I started to say uh, Zephyr Hills water, but I don't know if quite that. I won't go that far. But and then if you go back in Exodus 16, how did God feed these Israelites? How did He feed them? What did He do? How, how did He provide? Gain of a manna. Remember, they could, they had to. Uh, they had to collect it every morning, but on the sixth day, they could do what? Yeah, they, they could collect double. They brought their Tupperware, and they could, they could collect double, right? The Sela meal, that was where that first got started. Uh, because if they tried to store it up if they, on Monday, and they, they wanted to have some leftovers for, for lunch, it was rotten and weren't, you know, it was, but on the sixth day, because they weren't it wasn't provided for them, and they were not part of that whole resting on the seventh day Sabbath. But my point is, is that God did these miracles, and you would think that the, their trust would be so rock solid in God, but yet that's just not the case. And again, you can uh, read that. They quarreled with Moses, and they questioned Moses, and but uh, God instructed Moses, you remember, to strike the, when they were without water, they, he struck the rock. This isn't later when he struck it in anger, but he uh, struck the rock with his staff, and water gushed from the uh, from the rock and provided. And he called the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah. You can read this in Exodus 17:7. Meribah means a quarrel. It was a test, and it was a quarrel. And if you look in your Bibles to Verse 8, the latter part of verse 8, uh, it says, uh, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Uh, now I th- found this interesting, I'm just going to read what one writer said, that the Greek 
uh, translates the Hebrew, because you know the New Testament's written in Greek, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, so that created a, a, a widespread uh, readership in the Old Testament. But the Greek translates the Hebrew that in the Hebrew it reads at Meribah, Meribah is referring to Exodus 17.7, into, your version might say, as when they provoked me. Uh, and it translated in the Hebrew, it reads, as in the days of Massa, because those are the things that are referred to in Psalm 95, that is quoted here in Hebrews 3, into as in the days of trial. So the word of the Lord says that in the days that um, they provoked me, in the days of the trial, meaning again, direct reference to Exodus chapter 17 of where they provoked the Lord, where they challenged the Lord, uh, the Lord says that I was, verse 10, I was provoked with that generation, that they always go astray. Now, just to finish this out, God's word, and we've kind of talked about this, uh, this, this idea that God's word is a now word. God's word is to, it speaks to us in our life today. It's not just, again, as I said, history, but there's, a, there's that challenge. I won't, uh, I won't uh, turn to it, but you may just make a note. I thought of in Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, Peter, he is before Governor Felix, and uh, he is uh, giving his, um, he's been brought up on charges, and he has opportunity to speak before the Governor Felix and his wife. And it says that uh, Peter, I mean Paul rather, as you read it down towards the latter part of verse 19, 20, and 21 of Acts 24, that that. Felix was, uh, one version I think says, almost persuaded. And if you remember, what was Felix's reaction when he got a little stirred, we'll say a little convicted, how did he respond? Yeah, he said, all right, that's enough. Um, Go back to your cell, maybe I'll hear you another day. Well, you know, well, there's no record that he did. In fact, if you read towards the latter part of the chapter in chapter 24 of Acts that uh, Felix got transferred and we never hear anything about him. But, you know, now in that case, his, his today of salvation, if you will, was from our account. I mean, I'm not, I don't have the totality of everything that happened in Felix's life, but he was presented an opportunity uh, of the gospel to receive the testimony of the Apostle Paul and his reaction when it when you read it when he got a you know we would say a little convicted he got a little challenge and he just said all right that's enough that's enough I don't want to hear anymore you know anybody like that you know and we're talking about hardness of heart that uh, just when the word and the the spirit's kind of making its way and you think wow this is good this is good the Lord's doing something and you're encouraged right and all of a sudden, in fact, there was a recent uh, person that uh, was uh, the, the man and, and he, they weren't married, they were uh, dating. Um, and they were coming to church and uh, he was really encouraged because um, uh, he said that she was a believer, but uh, they couldn't, I guess because their background, he left it up to her to pick a church. And so I guess they, uh, for what, you know, she looked online or whatever, found our church and, and so thought that would be good. And, and so they came. And uh, I remember the Sunday that came and he was really excited because she loved the church and, and uh, you know, everything was great. And, he, and of course, you know, you know, he's wanting to move this little relationship along. So that was an important, you know, relationship builder, right? So they wanted to get that. And he was, you know, very committed to those things. Well, uh, saw them maybe for another couple of Sundays and then never heard any more from them. And then uh, out of the blue, he had contacted me about something kind of unrelated. And in the course of that conversation, told me that uh, she just kind of reached a point that she didn't want to hear any more about 
Christianity and this, that, and the other, and she wasn't sure she believed, and, and so she just kind of went and pivoted a completely different direction, and he was just really discouraged, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I can't, you know, this isn't a relationship that I want to pursue, and he was just disappointed because she didn't just go from, well, let's try the Lutherans, or let's try the Episcopalians, you know, or whatever. No, she just went like, I don't want anything to do with it, and I'm, I don't, you know, I, you know. So he was really, so again, I, was that, was that, when was her today to hear his voice, you know? So uh, yeah, there are times in our lives uh, that we all have a sovereign moment of the today, hear his voice, uh, like a Felix or, and like other folks, and these folks uh, delayed and put off their obedience and did not follow through with the Lord. And so he's taking this history and saying, don't be like these people. Duh, learn from them. Don't be like these folks and have that hardness of heart. You know anybody that, that, that has developed that it seems as though, and again, only the Lord knows, but it seems as though there was a time that they walked with the Lord. It seems that there was a time when they were warm to the things of God, and then events and circumstances came into their life and disappointments and hurts and maybe some sickness and some real, you know, not negating real trials. And instead of those things uh, pushing them deeper and further into a relationship with the Lord, it just kind of seemed to, they went in opposite direction. And instead of sometimes what trials will do in a believer's life is they, they grow more tender and affectionate to the Lord because God is really, they really learn and, and experience the Lord ministering to them at a very emotionally vulnerable place. And, and I'm sure many of your uh, testimony here tonight, you could say the most deepest, uh, sweet lessons I've learned about the Lord haven't been when just things are rolling high. It's been when I've been in that valley, you know, and I had to look up to see bottom. If you remember and you read the very last verses at the end of 2 Timothy, which is attributed to some of the very, 2 Timothy is the last book that we know of that Paul wrote and the Holy Spirit saw fit to put into the New Testament uh, canon. And at the end of that 2 Timothy, uh, Paul is in that Roman jail and that's where he says, everybody's abandoned me and uh, my friends that I thought were with me, they've all turned their back and have gone a completely different direction. But that's when he says, but the Lord stood by me. And, uh, you know, you might be able to relate to that. Uh, you may not have been in a physical jail, but at that place where you felt all alone. And instead of feeling, God just abandoned me, no, the Lord was with me. Everybody else left. Demas left. You know, they all left. They all abandoned. They all turned their back on me. But the Lord was with me. Let's look, let's look at this second point real quick. And as I said, there's two more that we'll look at next week. So, <clears throat> to avoid hardness of heart, as we said in, in the first part, we must come to God's Word with submissive hearts. God, uh, teach me your ways. The psalmist, uh, Psalm 81, you look at that, verse 10 through, not now, but, but there's so many psalms that speak about, you know, teach me your way, guide me. In your way, there's a there's a disposition that I come before the word of the Lord, and I'm asking Lord, uh, teach me, show me, let it be a light to my path, guide me by your Holy Spirit. Secondly, if we're going to avoid a hardness of heart like those ones that were used as an example in the Old Testament in the wilderness, to avoid hardness of heart. We must make sure that our hearts, our hearts, are in proper relationship to God. So he says, do not harden your hearts, all right? Uh, he didn't say harden your mind, and of course we know the heart is speaking of, of the disposition of the, the, per, the whole person, of the sense of our affections and our will. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Look in your Bibles over to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Look over there for a minute. 
Mark chapter 7. And uh, let's look at verse 20, 21, and 22. Mark chapter 7, verse 21 and 22. Now, this in context is the Pharisees are uh, riding Jesus a little bit because his disciples did not wash their hands. Uh, that, uh, and it was not that they were... Uh, non-hygienic, certainly uh, we don't know the level of hygiene back in those days, but that didn't have anything to do with it. It was a ritual, ceremonial, religious washing that they were critical of. And Jesus, uh, we'd go down to verse 21, because he was saying, uh, well, he says, you know, that it's not what goes into a person. Verse 19, because it entered, you know, he says, but it's the stomach, it's not the food, it's not the, he said, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man. He says, not the physical foods, it's not the, whether you washed and did that, you know, that goes, he said, it's issues of the heart. You can't, there's nothing you can do about that, meaning you can wash your hands all day long and it's not going to have any effect on your heart. He says, for since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, verse 19, verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus is just underlining that the defilement, our problem, isn't outside issues, but the issues of the heart. That's something we can't fix ourselves. We need Christ. We need the gospel. We need uh, the Lord to provide that heart surgery. So sin, as the talking about hardness of heart, it's that hardness of our affections you know, the Bible, when uh, Samuel, uh, the Lord told Samuel when they were choosing a king, uh, he and uh, the famous uh, quote where it says that God does not, uh, you know, that man looks on the outward, but God looks upon the heart. You know, David was just a kid. They chose the outward. They liked a Saul. You know, big, strong, handsome, you know, good-looking guy. But this kid, they, in fact, you know, Jesse... Didn't even bother to have him line up with the other brothers. That's how little, you know, they considered him to be a potential king. But God looks on on the inward, whereas we look on the outward. And so the sin are issues of the heart and obedience and obeying God's word, especially in times when, in the context here, in times when we go through challenges of life or people around us that are causing us to perhaps uh, get off balance in our relationship with the Lord and we can be like these folks when they face some trials, verse 8, or or rather they can provoke where it says that the Lord uh, says that there was a rebellion says, verse 9, your fathers, they put me to the test. He was provoked. And he says in verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know, when we see wrath, and we think about the wrath of God, don't compare you getting wrathful or upset to God, because we're not God. God is holy and righteous. And, and wrath, let me just kind of close uh, a, a definition this way. When we talk about the wrath of God, wrath, and I don't know if I have this there or not. Um, yeah, the, latter, the very last bullet point. Wrath refers to God's settled Passionate opposition to sin. God is not passive when it comes to sin. Uh, In John chapter 3, verse 36, I'll just read it. That 
Jesus said that God's uh, eternal wrath is upon us. That's why John chapter 3, it's about being born again. For God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. But in that same chapter, he speaks that, that if we profess to be his children, but have not truly repented of sin, trusting in the Lord, that God's wrath, God's eternal wrath, his judgment is upon us. And so Jesus satisfied, remember we talked about the word propitiation? Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by becoming that sacrifice, satisfying the wrath of God, turning God's wrath from us to Christ who bore that penalty, bore that sin to receive the punishment of God uh, that uh, we ourselves, and it was intended for us. And so the wrath of God, um, now he, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 will talk about discipline. God disciplines, a discipline of God is one of the proofs that you're a son or that you're a daughter. But as we've uh, taught several weeks back in 1 Thessalonians, we are not appointed unto wrath, that being born again, being a part of God's family, the elect, we are not appointed to wrath, that Jesus satisfied that wrath. And that's why we can have the freedom to be in God's family. And so don't miss that this was not just some small infraction, this rebellion. And, and, and just to kind of close this thought is that the writer of Hebrews is using this, and especially the, the severity of that last verse, which I think came from Numbers 11 and not Psalm um, uh, uh, 95, but I'll have to check that. But he's, he's underlined that, that this isn't just some little, uh, that to depart from God's provision in Christ and to reject that. See, this is part of the, the warnings. Hebrews has several warnings. This is a warning, a warning to not depart in disobedience and rebellion from God's ordained means that He has given to us in Christ. And by turning away, by disobeying, by rejecting, you will incur the wrath of God. And the implication is that that wrath of God is irreversible. Okay, It's not a discipline of the Lord. Children get disciplined. You better not discipline somebody else's kid, right? want trouble. We get disciplined. We don't experience the wrath of God. Remember we talked about the uh, Ephesians, we read that scripture Sunday, but don't quench the whole, or don't, uh, yeah, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, you know? I mean, as God's children, He deals with, deals with us as, fa as a father, but we're not experiencing the wrath of God, the wrath of God. Remember, close with this, Romans 1. That is an irreversible, when the word of the Lord is speaking about the sinfulness, the collective and corporate sinfulness of humanity, and God says even though they knew the truth, they intentionally chose not to obey the truth, to follow the truth. And the Bible says three or four times that God gave them over, or God gave them up. It wasn't that God made them sinful, their hearts were already rebellious, their hearts were already sinful, but God just took that restraint and allowed them to go the way that they naturally wanted to go. And that was an irreversible, and they experienced the wrath of God. And so the writer of Hebrews is giving some real warning here. This isn't just well, I'll be kind of a Hebrew, I'll be Christ, I'll be Christian light, L-I-T-E. I'll be Christian light, but I'll kind of hang out and be, do the Jewish thing. He's saying, no, you reject, just like those in the wilderness were rebellious and experienced the wrath of God. And, and the implication, as we'll see in chapter 4, don't miss where he's going because in chapter 4, he talks about they did not enter into the rest, R-E-S, God's rest. And in chapter 4, we see that Jesus has become our Sabbath rest.
The Sabbath is a picture of the rest of Christ. And he's not talking about sleeping, Lynette, okay? He's not talking about that. You're not sleeping, I'm teasing you. But he's talking about the rest. What, are we, what has Christ done? He has finished. He has completed the work of God. How can we experience the rest of God? Come unto me, he says, all who are heavy burdened, who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. We can rest in the finished work of God. We're not working to please God. We're not working to perform God. We're not working to get a little more holier than we can. We can completely rest in Christ because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, right? 